This is writer and game designer Robin D. Voz. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Knight's Black Delta Green. Recent Horror Essentials. NFTs of Carcosa. And Saving Will Rogers. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The thunk of dice, the crunch of miniatures, and the uh, gatefold cover of June Malay coming alive tell us that we are once more in the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, Joe Webb, asks, is there a Fall of Delta Green Knights Black Agents crossover episode? After listening to The Story of My Love by Chun Malay, there needs to be. Uh, so this is a song from the soundtrack to the 2014 documentary by John Parazzi called uh, Don't Think I've Forgotten, and it is a really great, informative, and ultimately uh, tragic documentary about the Cambodian pop scene in the 1960s and early 70s, which if you know your history, you know where this is going, which under the Khmer Rouge was um, like all of Cambodian society was destroyed by the Khmer Rouge. And were artists let off the hook? No, they were not. They were deliberately targeted as an alternate source of popularity to the regime. And basically, if you can imagine everybody in a music scene being wiped out, by a murderous psychopathic government. That's what happened. <laughs> and uh, the destabilization of uh, Cambodia, of course, occurs before the Khmer Rouge takes over because uh, they are affected by the uh, spillover of the Vietnam War. And I guess this is where we get to uh, the fall of Delta Green element. And I guess we're going to back up for a second, consider, is this crossover going to be vampire thriller in a Lovecraftian universe can or are we going to have two sessions one is sequel to the other session where uh, just as sleepy hollow and bones occur in the same universe it is not ever acknowledged when the next episode of bones start where, where are we gonna sort out our vampire mythology from our uh, lovecraftian cosmic uh, horror i mean first let's back up a little further i don't know i could not find the lyrics to the story of my love uh, when I looked, not even in Cambodian or Khmer, the story of my love when you listen to it sounds like a pop bossa nova version of Swan Lake. That's basically what it is. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. It's it's fun. It bounces. It's a good tune. I am not a thousand percent sure where Joe Webb got vampires. Was there an obvious connection to that song that I am missing somehow, Robin, that you picked up on? I assume that this just means that this is 
evocative and suggests uh, a cool setting and story. Well, let me provide you with a tenuous connection, then. I will not throw shade on Joe Webb for saying this is not what Joe Webb had in mind, but I had to do a little digging to find it out. So kudos to you, Joe Webb, if this is what you had in mind. As you all know, the bad guy in Swan Lake is the Baron von Rothbart, who is an owl sorcerer. He is both man and owl, and he turns the beautiful Odette into a swan along with her companions and uh, sends his evil daughter Odile to ruin her chance at untransforming into a swan. And he basically wins at the end because it's a Russian ballet. So uh, that is Swan Lake, which, as we as I mentioned, is the tune of Story of My Love. One of the Cambodian vampires is called the Kamak Long. It is known as the Ghost Owl. And the Ghost Owl flies into the village. The Kamak Long flies into the village. It lets out a call, according to Teresa Bain's Encyclopedia of Vampire Mythology, that causes disease and brings death to those who are already dying. So it's kind of like, I guess, a vampire banshee. Fortunately, it can be easily driven off by yelling at it or by using cheese made from cheese, which strikes me as a translation that I did not follow all the way down the road, but I assume there's some sort of, it was much like garlic can drive off uh, the Malaysian vampire yeah. or the uh, Hungarian vampire. And Cambodia is not in the cheese belt. No. I believe it's a cheese area. But the French brought uh, them cheese, I'm sure, exactly. along with uh, the, the iron boot of colonialism. And so perhaps they thought, well, the, the French are in charge. Obviously, this stinky garbage that they eat must also drive away vampires. Stands to reason. So there is the connection that there is the uh, Kamak Long that uh, is the owl vampire. So perhaps the story of my love is actually about an owl vampire who is keeping these lovers separate, just as in Swan Lake. And I think if we start from a, a local owl vampire, the crossover can be, and I feel like to really live up to the potential that you have your fall of Delta Green adventure as the opener and this could be a monster of the week episode of fall of delta green in which they are fighting something that is not necessarily uh, one of the big l lovecraftian monsters so the kamak long is not a amigo misnamed or uh, something like that although it certainly very well could be or a biaki or something of that ilk that it's just this horrendous being that is battening on uh, death and disease and guess what Cambodia during the Vietnam War is full of both, so it has drawn Delta Green who are attempting, perhaps even to run interference ahead of Operation Obsidian, which is the Delta Green mission into Cambodia that will eventually destroy the program. And certainly if you've got um, uh, the Anka uh, rising up in, in Cambodia and causing all manner of, of horrific problems, they would be churning up the local monster sphere as well. And so one assumes the dead are rising from their graves and all the other uh, monsters are, are, are coming out. And among them, the Kabak Longs are, are flocking. And so you have a segment in which your Delta Green team, while in advance of the uh, of Operation Obsidian, runs into this Cambodian town that's being beset by the Kamak Long. They need to take it down so that they can use this town as, as a forward operating base. And so they fight the Kamak Long, and possibly you could have a element in which they've already been deployed into the town before and they have personal connections to it. And so maybe even they've fallen in love with a local girl and they have to protect her from the Kamak Long and they probably fail because again, Swan Lake and they defeat the Kamak Longs somehow, maybe not with cheese made of cheese, maybe with debt cord made of other debt cord, who can say, and that sets you up for the, present day adventure which is you know your knights black agents are 
hear about this network of vampires based somewhere in Southeast Asia, and they start investigating, and sure enough, the bad guy is our good old Kamak Long, who is now uh, taking human form and is moving around as the mysterious Rothbart and uh, capable of, among other things, not just battening on disease and death, but also turning people into swans or other birds if he wants to. And so he's maybe surrounded by Striges, the Roman bird vampires, or maybe he's got lesser Kamak Longs that do his bidding. And so I think that you have a, you know, going back into Indochina where something was left undone or underdone or badly done, which I guess would define virtually the entire American effort in Indochina. And uh, you have to undo or penetrate to the mystery. So you're building basically two mysteries. The first one that the fall of Delta Green agents will solve and think that they fixed it. And then the second underlying mystery that your Knights Black agents have to uh, hunt down and uh, uncover and realize that what when the Delta Green guys thought that they were solving the problem, they were, in fact, just making it worse. See previous discussion about the American effort in Indochina. And this can provide you with possibly a doorway to open mythos vampires into Knights Black Agents. Obviously, there are many things in the Lovecraftian over that drink blood, uh, star vampires, uh, Joseph Kerwin, uh, the Dunwich Horror drinks blood, lots of stuff drinks blood in Lovecraft. So you can have those as the core of your vampire ideology, or you can just uh, have the Kamaklong as the big vampire group that's uh, running things in Southeast Asia and that the player characters are hunting down and there. And uh, Rothbard is the, is the Dracula at the pinnacle of that particular vampiramid or conspiramid rather. Right. Uh, the one advantage of doing this is that by having a scenario in the late sixties and another in the present day, as you avoid uh, the worst of the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields, which is the mid seventies. So you uh, get to sidestep that whole eternal issue of, not wanting to make human real horror connected to uh, imaginary fun horror of monsters with tentacles, or in this case, owl vampires. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing I guess you could do is if you want to preserve the non-Cthulhu-ness of Knight's Black Agents, uh, part of the thing that they could discover is that at some point there's a reality shift, right? And perhaps whether that's literally the King in Yellow arranged a reality shift and shifted himself and all of the uh, mythos elements that were running wild in the in the 60s out of the universe so there's just regular vampires left because one of the issues of course is that once you do that you've otherwise you've turned your knights black agents game into a uh, delta green game and did you want to do that or do you just right. want to have yep. a sort of a fun nod be between the two of them and i guess one other thing that you could do is if you are going to respect that barrier, it would then be thematically appropriate in a spy thriller to have a happy ending in which you undo uh, the horrors of the uh, of the owl vampire incident from the 60s and somehow revive uh, the owl girl who is, uh, or the swan who's been, uh, you know, in suspended animation for all these years and have a fairy tale ending road. And of course, this gives you the option once you rescue her from her swan-like uh, sleep to escape with her out of Cambodia and get that good old uh, chase sequence that, of course, is the uh, bread and uh, butter of Knights Black Agents. Yeah, you could have that even as the inciting incident of your Knights Black Agents game and leave the is there a larger mythos question hanging over the campaign until you decide to resolve it one way or the other. And that maybe as far as your player characters are concerned, much like as far as the vast majority of the intelligence community, even in the fall of Delta green is concerned. There are no Cthulhu mythos monsters. That's nonsense. That's what uh, crazy psych cases in the ONI care about. We're doing important stuff with uh, commies and whatnot. Similarly, maybe there's a real mythos out there. There are certainly horrible things that drink blood, but, as long as there's no sanity mechanic, how can you tell as a Knight's Black agent? You don't wind up with access to any magic books, or if you do, they're just standard sort of vampire magic books, like, you know, the Le Dragon Noir or whatever. You know, there's there's no reason to think that these books drive you insane. or And basically, you can you can run it as close to the wall as you feel like, and as long as you never say any of the great names, and as long as you never literally have the impress of cosmic futility as a big theme of your game, 
the players may never know if you intend there to be a mythos element in the present or if it is just, as you say, a fun callback and maybe a reality shift happened. And what you can do is you can calibrate the reaction of your players who presumably in this scenario already finished off a Fall of Delta Green game. And Mm -hmm. you can tell whether they are, oh, no, not this again. Or let's wrap up that unfinished business. You can see uh, whether they want it to go all Cthulhu-y and uh, covertly nudge your decision-making toward uh, what it is that they uh, seem to want. Um, What segments seem to want, however, is to, after having reached a point of conclusion, to end, to sleep like a swan, snooze by the banks of a river, and uh, we're going to head on to the other side of the river and see what uh, commercial is there, and beyond the commercial, what segments. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. The light of the projector stabbing across the auditorium. The silent nothing, not even a whir, as the digital images appear on the screen. The sound of a cash register charging you $29.95 for a small popcorn and large Coke welcome you into the pretty much modern edition of The Cinema Hut, where we sit down in the center aisle, center seats, and once more settle in for our horror essential film festival. And here we are, Robin. As I imply, we're almost at modern times. We are in the year 2008, which is bizarrely one of the best years for horror in the millennium in that we have four essentials in it. I don't think that since the uh, great days of J-horror, we had that many in a single year. Right. And we're going to go briskly. Hopefully this will be our penultimate segment because we're going to start off with uh, not one, not two, but three movies that I haven't seen. And Ken will quickly describe them all. Wow. Okay. So the first on your list, Ken, is The Strangers by Brian Bertino, 2008. I hadn't even heard of this when it showed up on your list, and I take it it's a home invasion horror movie. It is a home invasion horror movie. It is a very basic home invasion movie in in many ways. It is Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman are staying in a vacation home, and three masked criminals break in. It is uh, very short, like an hour and a half, not even an hour and a half. It is very intense, just build on build on build. It owes a great debt to a film that we did not mention, Funny Games by Michael Haneke from 1997. And the reason we did not mention it, I don't know if you've seen it, Robin, but Michael Haneke makes Stanley Kubrick look like Frank Capra. Any omission of Michael Haneke on my part is entirely intentional. Yes. You think I was mean (laughs) to Dario Argento? Yeah. Wait wait till you hear me on Michael Haneke. In this case, he also has a deliberately pedestrian visual sense. Oh, he always has a deliberately (laughs) pedestrian. Deliberately implies (laughs) that he could have an interesting visual sense (laughs) since he's never demonstrated it. Wait a minute. I'm going on my Michael Haneke rant. Please continue. Yes. My point is we did not mention funny games on purpose. It is a watching insects fight. It is not a horror movie, but the strangers is a horror movie because you legitimately care about the human beings in it. You're genuinely scared. Scott Speedman is exactly the ineffectual slab of meat. You think of when you hear Scott Speedman, that makes it visceral and thrilling. Liv Tyler is terrific. It's just a nearly perfect home invasion film. It uh, set off a whole charge of them, a little minor ripple of home invasion movies in its wake, and was very influential, made a ton of money at the box office. Everybody loved it. And it is a, a pulse pounder. It has, I think, zero 
parts where you stop and catch a breath ever, because when you're catching a breath, it will catch in your throat. The movie will keep going. It's just a really, really good, perfect distillation of that perfect scare like it in in many respects but unlike it in uh the core respect in that it is a faux documentary is lake mungo uh directed by joel anderson it's a faux documentary or at least it sort of begins as a faux documentary and then changes uh it's about ostensibly about a family uh whose daughter drowned and is trying to understand what happened and as The movie goes on. It is many different versions of the story. There are videos that are then called into question as hoaxes. So you, the viewer, are never sure where you are standing in relation to the film. Uh, The film itself moves from documentary to fiction, back to hoax, back over to documentary. It's reality horror through the medium of the film. It is brilliantly written. It's uh, an amazingly effective movie for something that, in theory, has very, you know, uh, grandiloquent at the center of it. No big effects, no monsters or whatever, but there's sort of ghosts and sort of dreams and sort of uh, who can say it's like Mungo. It's a, it's a, it's a mysterious, it's a mystery of place and a mystery of family. And it is a reality horror again, uh, among the finest. Uh, and I'm kind of surprised you haven't seen it, Robin, but uh, there we are. It's not available to stream in, in my market in any way, shape or form. Wild. Well, there you go. And I guess the third in the uh, trifecta of films that Robin somehow missed is The House of the Devil by Ty West, 2009. It is a straight-up satanic panic movie made in 2009. So looking back when people thought, oh, we're never going to have another crazy moral panic about nothing. <laughs> and it is, uh, Ty West films it as... Uh, in the, in sort of the style of the late seventies and early eighties. So it's a, it's an homage visually and cinematically as well. It's one of those movies where you see the, the title font and you automatically love the movie because it's so perfect. And it is a, also a very tight, very well done, you know, sort of, uh, slasher meets a haunted house babysitter movie. And it, it just works. It, it, there's no part of it that's, that's bad. This was like, I don't think, I don't remember if it was Ty West's first film, but it was maybe his first big film. And it really sort of encapsulates what we've talked about when we talk about the sort of ironic sense of film auteurs. And it sort of made, I think, Ty West a director that I, I watched for a while because I kept waiting for him to be as, as good as he was in House of the Devil. I don't think he quite has again, but he's definitely got that sort of, uh, John Landisy sensibility without, I think, the dark humor necessarily, although there's elements of that, obviously, in the in the whole uh, project. But um, it's, you know, a, it's a perfect recapitulation of basic horror genres with a, a layer of satanic panic and a layer of late 70s aesthetic on it. It's well worth looking at. And it's also genuinely, you know, scary and rousing in the way that it ought to be. So next up, we have Cropsy by Zeman and Brancaccio from 2009. And I have seen this and I have a little bit to say about it, but you're the one who loves it. So I'm going to throw it back to you. So this is actually a, a documentary, in fact. Yes, this is the first documentary on our list since Hexen, I think. And it is about the search for a boogeyman named Cropsy who haunts Staten Island and takes children and it sort of goes into the story of Cropsy and you've settled in and you think, well, this is going to be a great little folklore documentary. And the, and then the voiceover says, and that's when the child disappearances started. And you're like, uh, wait. And it turns out that, uh, the haunted asylum that Cropsy supposedly lived in used to be a institution for developmentally disabled people. And they were horrendously treated by the state of New York. And there's a lot going on in it. And as it is uncovering a genuine social ill, it is also talking about this series of child disappearances and the degree to which the same disinterest that the state showed when running the institution is also perhaps shown in the hunt for the children. So it is a true crime movie and it interrogates that point in horror where you have a facile explanation for the bad guy. Oh, well, he was the son of a thousand fathers because of the fire codes, but it turns out, nope, there is a true institutional failure at the heart of that. And 
it works remarkably well as a horror film just because it's lots of evocative shots of this creepy place and then it becomes a moral horror and a, a social horror as you see this story play out in Staten Island and realize well you know there but for the grace of god this could be happening in Illinois or Massachusetts or many other states around our fair union. Yeah, I, I would probably class this as an interesting deep cut rather than a horror essential, but I did see it and liked it, and it is as you described. Finally, we come to one that I think we're both uh, equally enthusiastic about, and that's Absentia by Mike Flanagan from 2011. And this is a great example of uh, low-resources, weird horror uh, and reality horror, but with bugs. Uh, and it basically all started when Flanagan, who's since gone on to uh, much bigger scale productions and has become a very prolific, specifically horror auteur, which we rarely see these days. Uh, but this is about a, a woman and her sister who realize that there's something strange about the tunnel in their neighborhood and that whatever strange thing begins to infiltrate uh, their home. And uh, it's a, a great example of uh, sort of high weirdness and kind of scrappy scale realism butting up against each other. And unlike a lot of the things that we're talking about in this uh, segment, or we'll talk about, this is not something where you can go, oh yeah, it's, it's another ref on the werewolf movie, or, oh, it's a combination of, uh, oh, let's say uh, there's a bit of uh, Rosemary's baby. And then it kind of turns into the wicker man. Nope. This is a, a deeply original, deeply odd and uh, disturbing uh, film on a sort of a philosophical level. Yeah, uh, I got into a bit of a scrap with Sandy Peterson. Sandy said it was a Lovecraftian film. I held out for it being a Mackinesque film, but that's how far back you have to go to find something like Absentia is a hundred years. So good luck, everyone. Everything Robin said is, is correct. Flanagan basically lived near this creepy tunnel and said, I'll bet if I had $10,000, I could make a movie about this creepy tunnel. And it Indeed, he did. Uh, it took him a little more than that, but it, it's an amazing case of the writing and the directing, which are things that are entirely under your control cost-wise, being the core of a terrific movie. It's not like anything else you've seen, and it is very, very powerfully affecting, and it will creep you the heck out, especially if you live near a creepy tunnel. And it illustrates how you can't trust IMDb ratings on horror movies, because if it's not just sort of a churning scare fest. If it's anything other than conventionally trying to scare you, a lot of people are going to downgrade it. And uh, anything that's sort of weird or evocative or uh, playing with horror in, in uh, anything other than a straightforward way is going to get dinged. And this one has a disgracefully low 5.8 rating on IMDb, but it's a horror essential. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Robin, this is now your turn to talk about a movie because I did not see Sinister. Sinister. Uh, Scott Derrickson from uh, 2012. This is an example of what I was talking about, of the sort of fusion of different horror elements. Uh, this scene, It starts out seeming like a classic uh, haunted house movie, which begins with moving into a new place and the kids are upset and Ethan Hawke, the somewhat irresponsible uh, seeming father has kind of gotten them in its bind where they're not going to be able to move. But then there are elements of uh, creepy videotapes that are discovered. So you get a bit of a J horror element coming in and then uh, not to spoil and the, the found uh, videos of uh, murders taking place in the house are incredibly freaky there. It's astoundingly well-realized and awful and, and shocking. And then, oh, well, it turns out, you know, there's yet another horror genre that comes in at the end. And uh, it uh, definitely shows the, the cinematic chops that got Derrickson, the uh, Doctor Strange movie, and uh, I think is a, a, a superior example of the sort of horror mixmaster film that we're seeing more and more as directors' uh, lists of homages and uh, genre references are beginning to turn uh, in a sort of a Rococo uh, way in on themselves. And Sinister kicks off another bunch of haunted house movies, although the one that really supercharges it is James Wan's The Conjuring, a movie that I think we've discussed in the context of the wild clown universe of it. I don't find it an essential, but it absolutely changed the shape of, of 21st century horror. Likewise, James DeMonaco's The Purge, both of those from 2013, both of those interesting, both of those kind of fun, 
neither of them we think essential. Yeah, uh, Conjuring is on our list of mentions because it is the movie that had the big hit with the let's mash together a bunch of different horror elements. In this case, it's is it a haunted house movie? Is it an exorcism movie? It's both. And it's sort of poltergeist. And The Purge, of course, touched off a big phenomenon. They're still making iterations of it. And when you go back and watch the original one, you just wish that it was nearly as good as the movie you imagine when you hear the premise. Yeah, right. Which is true of so many horror movies, quite frankly. Yes. I want more political horror movies to exist because the aftermath setting in The Yellow King is political horror. It'd be great to have more things to point to. But instead, uh, we have uh, The Purge. And so this brings us to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night by Anna Lily Emmerpour from uh, 2014, uh, which is another great low-resource, in this case, a black-and-white, moody, evocative uh, film shot in Southern California but set in Iran about a a young, uh, rebellious girl who wants to skateboard her way out of her uh, terrible family. But uh, there's this little problem of having to uh, keep drinking blood in order to uh, to keep going. And it's a wonderful piece of uh, sort of atmospheric horror uh, set in an unfamiliar location to horror fans and in a way that I think evokes the uh, sort of 30s Dracula kind of mummy moody horror as well as uh, being a great little character piece. It is a better daughter of Dracula even than daughter of Dracula. It is... A astounding example of what black and white cinematography, a strong but not even super essential script, and good casting can do for your vampire movies. Sheila Vand is the titular girl. She is perfect as a girl who is, um, you know, the uh, the lust mord, the death and eros impulse uh, tangled up together. Very La Belle Dame sans merci. And also terrific inhabiting of this sort of aspect of freedom with the poisonous consequences thereof. It's uh, somehow manages. I mean, Anali Amarpur is Iranian by extraction. So one assumes she comes by that uh, cultural framework, you know, either directly or, or at very close hand. But she manages to have the vampire as this deliberately ambiguous figure in a way that a lot of films that either make them the hero or the villain don't do. And that ambiguity, as I've said in other contexts, is absolutely crucial to making a horror work, the uncertainty, the uncanniness. And uh, you combine that with Lyle Vincent's amazingly good uh, black and white cinematography, and you have just a terrific uh, visual experience that also has a vampire in it. So it's it's uh, terrific. Okay, Ken, hit, hit us with one more, and I think this that would make this the penultimate uh, segment. All right. In that case, we will follow A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night with... It Follows, which is also about a girl who does a lot of walking and some of it at home alone at night. But uh, it is about a, a young woman who is trapped into what we at first think is date rape gone uh, even worse. And it turns out to be uh, she is trapped into a curse and the curse is to be followed by an invisible monster. It Follows uh, directed by David Robert Mitchell. This was his first film, or certainly his first film that went wide. And it has a weird aesthetic. It's sort of set in a no place. Maybe it's the 80s, like horror now takes place in uh, millennial filmmakers' minds. Or uh, maybe it's modern times, but there's no real way to be sure. So it has this sort of weird Haddonfieldy feeling to it. And it is also in bits as tense a suspense film as you ever want. I am not a gigantic fan of the ending. I feel like there is a lot of uh, hugger mugger that sort of wastes some of the really good high concept of the film. But certainly uh, at the end of the day, it is both original and riveting. And you can't ask for more than that in a horror essential, right? Right. It sort of takes the 70s slasher film cliche of the, uh, you know, have sex, get murdered formula, and then transposes it into a supernatural realm in which Mitchell then makes an effort to make that more interesting and, and uh, more of a, uh, a metaphor for uh, social connection. And obviously there's a uh, HIV parallel as well. And then also there's the fact of it being a slow horror. The invisible humanoid creature just very slowly heads toward you. 
and you can try and put distance between it, you and it. But the thing is, eventually you have to stop for a while and it, it doesn't. It never and does. It's that sort of return to, in a way, the slow zombie. There's one of them. He's very determined and he's never, he's not going to lose track of you. Uh, that I think is the thing that makes it uh, work on a uh, more sort of straightforward story level in addition to all of the uh, sort of metaphorical stuff that we've been talking about. And I, and I think we should also mention the soundtrack, the score by Disaster Piece, which is, as with most Disaster Piece pieces, uh, very, very effective, very haunting, very moody, does a lot to pull the movie together, even when, as I say, I'm not a thousand percent sure I think the fourth act works. So on that note, uh, we're going to uh, duck back out of the cinema hut, but next week we'll be back with the final, the ultimate edition of Horror Essentials. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from running out of riles by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Martin Runquist, Nate Merritt, James Candelino, Urs Blumentritt, and Ben Brigoff. The clatter of the teletype, the lighted letters streaming across the building facade once more. We're in 1940 for some reason, but this story is ripped from today's headlines. Ripped. From the headlines, Robin, you had an idea that the story that is uh, blowing up or was blowing up sort of, I don't even know what corners of Twitter. I saw it in weird finance Twitter. I saw it in angry communist Twitter. I saw it in art Twitter. Uh, it, it crosses seems to, so many streams. It does cross a lot of streams. Environmental Twitter. Environmental Twitter. They're mad, happy, excited, wild about these NFTs, Robin. And when someone is making that many people wild, happy, and excited. It's only it's only a, the work of a moment for us to discern the hand of the Yellow King behind it. Am I wrong? Right. I'm not wrong. Yes. So I guess we'll have to try and briefly explain what this is, not because we can do a better job of explaining it, but because maybe in a year or three months or three months from now or sometime, this is going to, no one's going to know what this is again. It'll yes, be like it's that, like explaining Beanie Babies. Yeah, it'll be that weird <laughs> blip from the beginning of a period, but... So basically, a non-fungible token is connected to a way of authenticating uh, whether you are the owner of a digital piece of art or concept or idea so that you uh, just to and this is something that absolutely was seeded by video games and that we learned that people are just as happy, perhaps happier if they don't have storage space to collect imaginary virtual things as they were to collect actual physical objects. In this case, we'd be talking paintings or uh, video clips as part of a video installation. Those are very difficult to collect in physical form. And some really insane prices have been garnered by pieces of art that are like, what? That's okay. Um, so I thought that, uh, in fact, Ken and I were off mic discussing various ramifications of what you could do with this in a scenario and realize that we'd launched into a segment. So we stopped talking. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that uh, you can imagine doing with uh, NFTs is look for things that people obsessively collect that they should not collect in real life and somehow turn that into a way of collecting NFTs. And then also then we'll turn that into a scenario. So for example, there's a really 
a terrible version of attacks on endangered species, which we talked about a bit before in our animal trafficking segment. But there were people called oologists, and it used to be considered perfectly normal to go around to birds' nests and steal the eggs, and then you would blow out the embryo, therefore killing the uh, what would otherwise possibly be an animal that would hatch and live, and collecting it. And after the uh, CITES Act, the uh, Endangered Species International Rules came in, uh, you weren't supposed to do that anymore, especially with endangered, say, falcons or hawks. But guess what? There's a small number of people who kept on doing it uh, covertly and wound up, you know, severely hampering the recovery efforts of a lot of these birds. Well, let us envision that we are able to reorient the hunting and finding and rarity impulses of these people. And instead of having them steal eggs, they find a way to, uh, you know, their photograph of the egg where they've climbed up a cliffside or up a tree or something, they've risked their lives. And one thing about oologists is they often die or are badly injured falling off of cliffs and trees doing this. Yes. But you could go and you could take your digital photo of it and that becomes the NFT. Or you could have a, a sort of a scavenger hunt thing where you place, you know, little cards whether they be USB drives or memory cards or wherever it is in dangerous, difficult places and uh, nowhere near any actual birds that you would frighten or upset or possibly kill. And therefore you have sort of an NFT scavenger hunt, which I think obviously suggests uh, what happens uh, when the player's uh, characters are called in because something awful has happened. One of the people engaged in this sort of NFT geocaching uh, situation and you have to find out uh, what exactly it is. Could it be a giant bird carrying people off? That would be justice. That would also be kind of a little too funny. But I think there's all sorts of reasons you can have for someone to go uh, missing in the middle of a uh, physical NFT hunt. Yeah, the, the sort of the high concept that Robin and I were playing with, again, off mic, you should have been there. It was a terrific conversation, is the notion that anything that can be digitally stamped can become an NFT. And that includes obviously things that happen at a specific time or at a specific set of GPS coordinates. And so you can digitally stamp, not just the discovery of an egg, but also let's say your death falling from a cliff while trying to climb for an egg. And so I posited a possible traffic in uh, death NFTs that, you know, your, your cell phone, because you are a, a dotty NFT seeker outer is always, you know, sending things to the big server where your, uh, your experience is digitized and offered up on the NFT auction site. And, uh, when you die, well, that obviously, like everything else, makes your NFTs more valuable and it makes the moment of your death NFT the most valuable, especially if there is a necromantic component to collecting the NFTs of someone's death. Because you basically, I mean, talk about owning someone's true name, Robin, you basically have the, the moment their soul leaves their body you know, digitized and, uh, and cryptoed. Yes, because a lot of the ways that our society is going sideways right now is about sort of status anxiety run amok and curdled and this basic human impulse to show that you are higher on the tree than somebody else, uh, sometimes literally on a tree, I guess, in mm -hmm. this case, uh, has, uh, is driving a lot of people uh, around the bend. And here you can have the, the ultimate uh, influencer situation where literally your entire life's worth will have a cash value at the end when you die. And mm -hmm. so obviously you're, uh, anyone doing this is doing so in a uh, voluntary manner. And uh, you could have an even more horrible version of this, of course, where there's an underground dark web NFT where uh, the uh, serial killer is auctioning off the murders that he's uh, committing so that, uh, you know, you, you can collect them all. And that, you know, would turn a group of ordinary people would give them an, a cash incentive to be uh, to become murderers. That's a very purge-like. That's kind of also or kind of esotericy. So that's yeah. a, sort of a uh, probably the most obvious horror application of uh, of this idea. And again, it has that sort of creeping. How do you even shut this down once somebody decides to start doing it? Because of course, the whole point of this is that it's like so many other things on the internet is sort of distributed everywhere and nowhere at once. And, and, uh, and maybe normally uploading, you know, the NFT of, you know, your, your death or your significant moment or your, or your beautiful digital cat dancing or whatever it is, is, you know, it's, it's no worse than any other NFT or any other modern art money laundering scam, but I repeat myself, but 
if someone buys your NFT with that new cryptocurrency yellow coin, Robin. Yes, because obviously uh, what uh, the King in Yellow is going to do with this idea, speaking of people who have new role-playing games uh, based on the King in Yellow, is uh, they're going to use the NFTs in order to propagate the play and bring uh, the realm of Carcosa and the Black Lake of Hali and the white sky with the dark stars into our realm. And so what better way to get people to read something they shouldn't read than to uh, make it incredibly expensive and rare. So uh, this thing that you bought, it's a page from the play. You spent $42 million on it. Are you going to read it? Yeah, of course you are. Or uh, maybe you are uh, going to use it and try and sabotage your friends. And uh, one thing about NFTs is that people pool in to own a share of... <laughs> so you're not only owning a digital image but you're owning like an 18th of a digital image well in this case well if there's six of you who've all bought into the uh the play maybe you have a, a sort of a tontine like deal where if you actually read it everybody has the ability to go in and read the page but if you read it you lose your share in it only the people who don't read it that's how you it's going to be okay this this play drives everyone insane, but we're all going to agree not to read. Oh, wait a minute. The digital counter is ticked over. Mm -hmm. But somehow there's something weird has happened in the program. We're not sure which of us has read it. What's going to happen next? And so that could even be the uh, premise for an alternate campaign frame of This Is Normal Now is that you are all once the six loners of a crucial page of the Yellow King play uh, in NFT form. And that's what binds you together. You don't even necessarily all know each other at the beginning of the first scenario. And uh, something has happened to one of you and there's weird reality breaking uh, ramifications of that. And, and not all NFTs are in the tens of millions. Those are just ones, as I mentioned, that are used for money laundering. People are now selling individual tweets as NFTs. And those are, you know, those are down in the in the tens of dollars. If you desperately wanted to buy one of my many Virgil tweets, talk to me uh, on Twitter. <laughs> or save yourself some time and effort and just support the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, just give the money to the Patreon. But but I'm saying that uh, you don't necessarily have to assume that your characters are rich um, uh, New York jerks who deserve to be uh, carried away to the Lake of Holly and now drowned. Can. They might be rich San Francisco jerks. Be reasonable. Who also deserve to be carried away to the Lake of Holly and drowned. Good point. But the notion is that uh, NFTs are, are now available in, in a wide Wide variety of costs to suit every idiot's budget. And so we don't have to assume that they're all zillionaires. Uh, the zillionaires involved are basically being rooked by money launderers. So that's a different th situation. The, the other possibility, of course, because again, you have this notion where these NFTs in theory are individual things that exist. Of course, they're being stolen somehow. The blockchains are being cracked. We've already had our first major NFT theft that has happened, apparently. I don't know if it was just a matter of someone hacked someone's blockchain wallet password and lifted it that way, or if there was some other jiggery-pokery with the actual blockchain itself. One certainly hopes it's the former, because if people are able to break blockchain crypto with commercial software, that's a bad that's a bad piece of news for everybody, really. Yeah, and as a GM, keep it vague, because you don't want to yeah. be in danger of having to explain blockchain to the players. That's, no, God, that's yes. not a road you want to go <laughs> you, down. You, you don't want to do that for any reason. But the notion that these NFTs can be lifted is another possibility, because again, you know, you used Yellowcoin, not uh, Ethereum. And so stuff you buy in Yellowcoin is secure on this side of the world, but not from people who have a set of hacks from Carcosa. And those people are, think they're stealing NFTs, but what they're actually doing is reading the play because all of these NFTs put together blend into the same uh, semiotic and semantic images of the play. And so you thought you were just buying, you know, a guy collecting an egg and a supermodel in front of a neon background and a, a cartoon cat and a bunch of other stuff. But when you buy them all and steganographically overlay them, it becomes a guy in a pallid mask uh, welcoming you across a black grotto. And that's just the end. That's all she wrote. Uh, the one advantage, though, of Yellowcoin is that if you go to Carcosa, it's actually easy to convert it into regular fiat currency. Yes, that that actually is why people then deliberately seek it out is because they need to unload their yellow coin and, and turn it into uh, simple dollars. Right. Well, on that note, I think we're once again veering into the danger of explaining blockchain. So uh, yeah, let's get out of here and see what's <laughs> waiting for us on the other side of this commercial.
Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing the roaring time gears and the clacking of chronotons uh, tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine uh, at the behest of estimable Patreon banker John Stewart. But before we get to the question posed to Ken, John has sort of a double header here of two local questions. And uh, the one that he's asked me is not an entire segment worth. And uh, so I will dispense with that first, and then we'll get to the actual thing where Ken gets in a time machine and goes back into history. So John asks me to explain Marion Engels Bear. So every three or four months, the internet rediscovers the existence of this Canadian novel from the mid-70s uh, called Bear by a, a novelist named uh, Marion Engel. And the brilliant original cover art uses this sort of uh, same illustrator who undoubtedly did a ton of 70s Gothic covers has a woman in the erotic embrace of, you guessed it, a bear. Now, now, Robin, surely that just means a hirsute gentleman attractive to elements of the, the gay community. No, this this is a straight up actual bear. And oh. this goes into the lore of the uh, Writers Union of Canada, which I'm a, a proud member. And uh, Marion Engel was a key figure in Canadian literature. Uh, she wrote a number of, uh, of novels before she wrote Bear, and she was the first chair of the Writers' Union. And uh, in uh, 1973, when it first came together, early meetings of the union took place at her house. Now, these days, once we get out of the COVID-verse, the meetings of the Writers' Union take place in hotels and venues all across the country in different uh, provincial capitals or or in Ottawa, and they are arranged by my wife, who's for many years has been office administrator of the Writers' Union of Canada. Therefore, I know a little of the behind-the-scenes lore. Mary Nangle also is famous for helping establish the public landing right, along with a lot of other writers. And this is a program where if you're a Canadian writer with books in Canadian libraries, you can sign up and they sort of do a deep drill to see, uh, they do a survey to see if books are in uh, X number of libraries and kind of determine from there how many books are likely to be in the library. And you get a check every year for royalty compensation for the books that are taken out of libraries. Wild. Now, the 70s, uh, John Stewart, were a different time. <laughs> and the original crop of then very famous Canadian writers who uh, created the union, they had, they had fun. There were some wild times had. And uh, like I said, it was the 70s. And Did these wild times involve the erotic embraces of bears? No, not bears. But they did involve, uh, as all gatherings of writers do, libations. And as the lore has it, uh, there was a discussion that came up as to how you would go about actually really selling a Canadian literary novel. And riffing occurred, and uh, Marion Engel uh, allegedly said, well, uh, I should take Peggy's theory of being Margaret Atwood, who was probably in the room, theory of Canadian literature and about how it's all about survival and uh, particularly about our relationship with the wilderness. I should just make that literal and do a smutty novel about a, a librarian, and she's a librarian, who gets it on with a bear. And if I write it well enough, 
the, that has to be part of the joke, right? It has to be a well done literary novel. Yeah, right. And she took it to a regular publisher <laughs> who recoiled in horror, one hopes. Indeed, yes. The original <laughs> publisher did. Uh, she was known for writing stories of women's experience in, in everyday life. Uh, that was the 70s. So critics would say, yeah, that's kind of limited. And so again, <laughs> she was like, well, how do I do something really commercial? She said it to her original publisher and they went, I don't know how we can publish this actually good literary novel that is also incredibly controversial and weird and short and easy to read. I don't know what we could possibly do to th with this. <laughs> we couldn't make this a bestseller. And so they rejected it. And another titan of Canadian lit, uh, Robertson Davies, took it to his publisher and said, you've got to publish this book. And they did. And it was a big bestseller. And it won the Governor General's Award that year, a major literary prize. And the joke wouldn't work if it wasn't actually a well-constructed literary novel that relates to all the themes of Canadian literature. Now, who who is who awards the Governor General's Award for Fiction? Is it it's not the governor general, obviously. It's, is it's it a jury the prize. writers who were drunk in the room with Marion Engel when she came up with the bit? I would not say that any such collusion occurred. That's not part of the lore at all, Ken. So, you, so your your feeling is that in 1976, it legitimately was Canada's best novel. I have not read it, so I don't have a critique of, uh -huh. of the book. But <laughs> it was absolutely taken seriously and was a big controversy and sold a bunch of copies. So it's like a known big thing in... You know, it's like, uh, imagine an America that other people didn't know about. And imagine that every three to four months, somebody discovered Portnoy's complaint and thought it was <laughs> hilarious and weird thing that nobody had ever heard of. It's like, well, it's got a lot of sex in it, but it's also an acclaimed, well-known novel. It's weird yes. that you're being weird about it. I just, well, I, I, f I feel like it's less weird if people were weird about making sweet, beautiful love to a bear as opposed to just being a middle-aged guy who masturbates a lot. Well, you know, uh, Mary Engel was a, a pioneer because it turns <laughs> out on the internet, there's a lot of interest in cross-species romance. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I say nothing against its appeal on the internet, Robin. I'm only speaking on a sort of an abstract plane. So let's go from that bit of Canadiana to the folksiest of Americana, because uh, John's real question as opposed to you, as the person who gets in a time machine and goes back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. As a fellow Oki, I am astonished that you have not yet rescued Will Rogers and Wiley Post using your time machine. And uh, he wants to know what changes to the timeline this would bring. But first, uh, you're going to explain, because I think Will Rogers, speaking of literary titans who are now kind of forgotten, he went from a uh, roper on the vaudeville stage who had folksy sayings to a, a superstar and of, of his many portfolios, one of them is writing. Who was Will Rogers? Uh, Will Rogers was a Cherokee. He was from Oklahoma, who was born in what was then Indian Territory and is now the state of Oklahoma uh, in Claremore, which is near Tulsa. He began as a rodeo performer, uh, got his break in South Africa, of all things. Uh, used to claim that he roped horses for the British Army. That may or may not be true, but he certainly did a lot of roping and eventually made his way back to America as a famous lariat artist. And while he was doing rope shows, he started breaking up the rope tricks with the occasional bits of political humor. Uh, he made jokes about, you know, he, he started doing regular jokes as patter during his roping and then began to do political humor. And this was something that caught on because there had not been a lot of comedians who deliver political humor from the stage. And so uh, that blew up and they started putting him in movies. And then when movies became talkies, he really blew up because while watching a man silently rope things and then seeing a title card with a quip on it is great. Hearing Will Rogers delivery was amazing. And he rapidly became one of the biggest movie stars in America. And some of his films were directed by John Ford. John Ford, uh, his yes. His career really took off. Mm -hmm. And he uh, hung out with celebrities, traveled the world, was sort of a goodwill ambassador for America, and became interested in aircraft uh, because he was buddies with Billy Mitchell, the great uh, Maverick pilot and general, and also became buddies with Charles Lindbergh. And so he became very interested in flight and in between trips and maybe as a way to sort of cut down on his travel time, he began to investigate commercial air travel. His most famous quip is, I uh, never met a man I didn't like, 
which is not so much a quip as an epigram. Uh, perhaps his most famous political joke is, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat, which is still as true today as it was in 1927 or whenever it was he said it. So anyway, among the uh, pilots he buddies up with is a guy named Wiley Post, who is an uh, Oklahoman uh, pilot. He was born in some scrub town in Texas, moved to Maysville, Oklahoma as a boy and became a Oklahoman and became the first man to pilot a single engine plane around the world and began doing high altitude experiments. He accidentally discovered the jet stream and immediately was obsessed with traveling by jet stream, was not quite able to do that with the technology available to him at the time, but was interested in establishing airmail that would be, you know, you'd fly high and so you'd be able to go uh, farther faster. And while trying to build an airmail route to Russia, brought Will Rogers along on his flight and they were zooming up the West Coast. Uh, they landed in Barrow, Alaska uh, because they were lost. Uh, they got off and asked a local where they were. The guy told him they started to take off. Uh, they were on a float plane. The float plane was very, very nose heavy. And during the takeoff, the, the plane heeled over, uh, crashed into the pond, and Will Rogers and Wiley Post both died uh, in Barrow, Alaska, or near it, in 1935. And that was the end, sadly, of Will Rogers and of Wiley Post. Wiley Post, if he'd lived... I think we would have definitely seen stratospheric aircraft be built. I think that he was, you know, very much a driving force in it. Certainly, if he'd successfully been able to harness that for mail delivery, uh, we would have seen a lot more attention paid to uh, can you build an airplane that, that gets up into the jet stream and, and, and flies along. That would have had big knock-on effects, obviously, as World War II kicked off, because bombers with longer ranges would have been a desideratum uh, very much to be wished. And that might've legitimately uh, shortened the war a bit because you wouldn't have had to keep taking all those islands to get within bombing range of Japan, for example. And uh, likewise, uh, Germany's in bombing range of, of Britain with world war one craft, but you could have brought larger bombers faster over Germany and uh, amplified the, the air effort there. Will Rogers probably has, and it pains me as an Oklahoman and a fan of cowboys to say it, probably had already had his greatest effect in the world by making Woodrow Wilson laugh. And uh, he was a big New Deal Democrat. So there was um, certainly the New Deal did not lack for uh, celebrity endorsers, but one more couldn't have hurt. It probably was would not have been enough to overcome uh, the midterm elections that uh, took the pro New Deal majority out of Congress. But I guess you could pretend that uh, a Will Rogers, who is uh, barnstorming in the 1936 election and the 1938 election, keeps the New Deal Congress in play, which ironically means that uh, the United States very possibly because this is the section of the new deal that is all price controls and the NRA and, and things like that. This element of the new deal. And, and uh, tell people which NRA you're talking about. That's the national recovery agency, not the um, uh, national rifle association. And that is uh, basically the attempt to set prices and wages uh, across the board and uh, keep them frozen there, uh, which doesn't work even in world war two when we have world war two as the excuse, but advancing uh, the new deal, Congress might have had some knock-on effects. Uh, certainly, it would have had a, a bad effect in the later periods of, of the American economy in the later 30s, but World War II would still come along and still fix it. Uh, Rogers was a big isolationist, and being buddies with Lindbergh would make him a bigger isolationist, but Pearl Harbor. All, even Lindbergh stops being an isolationist then. Will Rogers is not going to keep us out of war, certainly after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Will Rogers used to say, America's never lost a war or won a peace conference. So that's sort of his attitude. So I, I don't think that we have a, a, a big knock-on effect there. We maybe have a slightly longer run of, you know, maybe the New Deal antitrust regime or some of the other New Deal things like maybe the Civilian Conservation Corps or something uh, keeps ticking along. And maybe we don't get stagecoach, right? Because if he's still a, a movie star, John Ford maybe keeps making uh, Will Rogers movies and doesn't fully become John Ford. There's a dire outcome indeed. Yeah, uh, the, it, his, his effective, if there is one, I think is going to be mostly artistic. There's going to be some... So some more uh, uh, Will Rogers movies. He was a big influence on Bob Hope, 
of all people. So maybe you see a, a road to Oklahoma movie where Will Rogers, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby are all together on stage. It does not make up for the loss of stagecoach, but it would be a, a curiosity to watch, I guess. Right. And of course, the way you effectuate this is you just go up to them on the plane and go, isn't that a little nose heavy? And then they, they fix it. Well, I mean, you 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 put a, a better map of Alaska in the cockpit so they don't have to land and ask for directions. <laughs> uh, the, the, there's a there's a controversy of, of whether or not the floats were too big. Uh, Wiley Post had to build the plane basically out of two other planes because Lockheed uh, wouldn't sell him one plane that was good for stratospheric travel. So we put bigger wings on a smaller plane plane to make it work and then lockheed said well you violated the warranty we want nothing to do with your stupid plane and so he was forced to sort of get floats off market and maybe the floats were bad but maybe they weren't aviation experts still yell at each other to this day on that topic and so i don't know that i'm the guy who convinces wiley post his floats are wrong especially if they aren't but i'm definitely the guy who says why don't you use this map of alaska it it will, it will point you in the right direction and you won't have to land and ask uh, at Barrow. So basically this is another of those timelines where it's just, it's not a huge differential. There's definitely no uh, dirigibles. There's no Zeppelins because the stratospheric aircraft would uh, clear them all out. Yeah. It's even more airplane uh, enthusiastic than regular timelines because Wiley Post, you know, hugely charismatic guy, very influential and important pilot. It is interesting that uh, the, both airports in Oklahoma City are named for people who died in the same plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> You go to Oklahoma City, you land at Will Rogers International Airport. You think, well, that's bad luck. I'm not going to fly out of that one. Well, how about flying out of Wiley Post? It's like, ah, do you have an airplane, an airport that's not named after someone who died in a plane crash? I don't oh, know. You mean Skinner Airport? Yeah, yeah. That that's right. Deal next, uh, with next year. Skinner Airport, Thurman Munson Airport in Boston. All right. Anyway, I, I think that uh, it's, it's one of those cosmetic changes, like we say, and yeah, Wiley post is, is the guy who's going to make the most obvious contributions. And uh, Will Rogers, God bless him is just roping his way along the rhythms of history and uh, does not uh, stand athwart it shouting stop at any point. Well, on that note, I guess uh, we can head into the airplane that we fly around in for uh, seven days while we wait to do some park and uh, put another podcast in your ear a week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pearlgrain Press. Astragown. Arc Dream. Brook Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. This podcast never met a donor it didn't like. For example... Gray St. Quentin. Jay Moore. Jeff F. Jeff Cars. And Jean-Francois Parody. Where the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. A rhinoceros, a cockatrice, and a turnip-headed wyvern walk into a forest in our latest design, Normal Times. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>